calf at the chute being treated for bovine respiratory disease, will he be a treatment success or a treatment failure? Often we don't know the answer to that question, but it could influence our therapeutic plan. We'll discuss that topic today on Bovine Science with BCI after the abstract. I'm Brad White, joined by Dr. Brian Libbers. Morning, Brian. Hey, Brad. I know you've got a paper that addresses this topic specifically, uh, and we're going to work through our typical process that we go through these in a systematic fashion. But Brian, tell us a little bit about the paper for today. I have a lot of interest in this paper. I, Beyond antibiotics, I really like diagnostics, especially predictive diagnostics. So this one's a good one for me. The title of the paper is Association of Lung Lesions Measured by Thoracic Ultrasonography at First Diagnosis of Bronchopneumonia with Relapse Rate and Growth Performance in Feedlot Cattle. And the primary author on this is Edward Timsit, and it was published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 2019. 2019. So what they did, so this, this study was actually, uh, this was a natural disease model, um, and they are measuring... Uh, they're basically looking at the diagnostic test, right? So we want to know if ultrasound um, can be used to predict outcome of BRD. So the again, we work through our algorithm on how to evaluate a paper, and we always start with the objective, right? Our objective here in the podcast is, is the paper clinically relevant? But the objective for their study um, was to determine how the severity of lung lesions quantified by thoracic ultrasound at first bronchopneumonia diagnosis affected risk of relapse and growth in feedlot cattle. And so, you know, very, I think it's very relevant to our listeners, Brad, that, you know, if I have another tool that helps me do a better job, not just saying it's BRD, but delineating which animals are more likely to respond or less likely to respond, um, that gives me some very useful information. So uh, the study population that they used, these were mixed breed steers and heifers, um, they were high-risk animals, um, and this was conducted in four different feed yards in Canada. So, again, that, that's the population we're looking at. And their study outcome were, were twofold. One, did the animal relapse or not after their first treatment? And two, what was the average daily gain of that animal? So also, from a health and production standpoint, both of those very relevant outcomes. Yep. Yeah. And, and again, the, the study was conducted in commercial feed yards. And, you know, one of the, one of the challenges we always have with doing this kind of research is each feed yard generally has its own kind of protocols. Um, and these were at arrival. So they might, might be slightly different arrival protocols. They might be fed slightly differently. In this case, it looks like they chose yards that were fairly close. Um, but, with the, again, with this type of study, um, usually we're we're not going in and dictating changes to what's normally happening. We work with how the yard works, and then we just and again, we're our study here is about a diagnostic test. So as long as we're getting animals that are at high risk for BRD, we're probably not going to mess with much else. So again, is that a limitation? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I think it also makes it much more relevant for applying it to a clinical population. And and this one. A little bit different than some of the studies we've talked in the past. This would be a naturally occurring mm-hmm. disease challenge, but an observational study in that there were no interventions. The The diagnostic test was applied, and then outcomes were assessed on those animals. And then post, after the study, they went back and looked and said, 
which of those might have been different between the between the two groups. But there was, and I will always ask you about blinding or masking. How did that impact into this study? Yeah, so the way that they blinded this study, so again, we're working in a commercial yard. The diagnosis, the, the pen diagnosis of BRD was made by the feed yard personnel. And, so, and that's another one. We've got four different yards, right? And so probably a little bit difference in experience and relative comfort with diagnosing BRD in the pen. But once they met those criteria of, let's see, they had more than one visual sign of bronchopneumonia, which could include lethargy, nasal discharge, cough, increased respiration rate, or trouble, difficulty breathing, dyspnea. Then they were pulled out of the pen. They were examined by a veterinarian. um, And then they also took rectal temperatures. But your question about blinding was the blinding happened at the data level. So the the people that were working in the feed yards that were making the the clinical diagnosis, taking the rectal temperatures, administering the treatment, um, they were aware of everything that was happening just like you would in a commercial yard. But because this study was evaluating ultrasound, the person reading the ultrasounds was blinded to clinical outcomes. So all they knew, all that they knew was they were BRD cases, they met the case definition criteria at the yard, and then their job was to evaluate the extent of lung lesions. But they had no idea if the animal relapsed, if the animal, what the animal's average daily gain one. So that's where the blinding happened. And I think for a study like this, that's completely appropriate. It should not influence our it should influence our results in a positive way, meaning I think we can trust that blinding procedure. Yep. And then, the, and, and I think having blinding as part of this is important. The, the other thing that I would ask you is, based on what they found, is it clinically significant? So maybe we should talk about what they found first, right? Okay. So what they found was that for predicting, uh, predicting is probably not the right word, for associating with ultrasound lesions with the risk of BRD relapse, they did find that both the maximum death, depth, sorry, depth of lung lesions, so how deep that lung lesion went, and the maximal area of those lung lesions were both statistically significant. So they were associated the more, the deeper the lesion, the greater the extent of the lesion were statistically associated with an increased risk of relapse. Now, I will say when they did this study, they also looked at the number of comet tails, which is a ultrasound lesion you see. I actually don't know what it's from. I, I can tell you what the from, lesion looks like. It's from comets. It's from comets, yeah. yeah. And then the depth of the pleural fluid, uh, pleural, pleural effusion, those were not significantly associated with, but depth and, and extent were. And and the two, depth and area, are also associated with each other. So one of the things that they mentioned was they were collinear. So they, they did the analysis on each of them individually, but from a clinical standpoint, a mayor may not need both. They may not be providing me independent information. Yeah, that's correct. And, but your original question was, how clinically significant is that? And and for me, I guess as a reader, for me, yes, they were statistically significant, but I think from a clinical perspective, the, the odds of relapse were not much greater than one at, at the cutoffs that they chose. So I'm kind of like, eh. At, okay, for, so let's, let's, let's talk well, about the yeah, specifics yeah, yeah. on that. So on maximal depth, the odds ratio was 1.3 
to one, which means if they had, if they were above the cutoff for maximal depth, that calf was 1.3 times more likely to die than a calf that was below the cutoff. Relapse. Relapse. Relapse, yep. Uh, But that range of those odds ratios was from almost one to 1.7. So clinically, it'd be tough to say that I'm really making a huge difference on sorting them into two different groups, those that are going to relapse and those that aren't. Yep, I agree. Yep, that's how I would interpret those results. And the the numbers are slightly different. So for for maximal area, the odds ratio was 1.05 with a range of 1.01 to 1.1. So the odds of being a relapse above the cutoff, yes, they were statistically significant compared to uh, the area and depth below the cutoffs, but just not, just not a lot. For me, I, I feel like if I'm going to take the time and energy to do the diagnostic test, I really want a little better predictive value. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think when you look at some of the tables, though, and, and that was what I found interesting in this paper, is they've got a table looking at all the different levels of max depth and max area. And what I see looking at those tables is when you get to the upper end of the spectrum, so when things are really bad, the lesion is really big or deep, that you're actually pretty darn likely that animal is going to relapse versus an animal that's that's going to do well. However, there weren't very many animals in that category, right? I didn't do well at identifying all of them. Yeah, and so a couple points about these. T- so we're looking at tables three and four in this paper. And I love the tables, Brad. You very rarely will see everybody publish the data like this. But I think because they chose and they they explain how they chose. So for the cutoff value. So for depth, they chose greater than five centimeters. So a a depth of greater than five centimeters is where they drew the line to say they either the they either had or didn't have an increased risk of relapse. And for area, it was greater than eight centimeters squared. But as a reader, I can look at this table and go, well, I, I think maybe the cutoff should be something else. Exactly to the point that you just mentioned, where when you get to the pretty extreme values of depth and area, the odds ratios go up significantly. Now, my question is, what does that animal look like clinically? Because my expectation is, if an animal has... Know, for example, 35 centimeters squared of lung involvement, you know, their likelihood ratio of them being a relapse is almost three, right? So they're three times more likely, but they probably clinically also look very ill too. And I would expect that. So now my question is at the extreme values, the test is better, but does it add more value than what my clinical impression is? Um, and that's, that's another thing about um, this paper that's difficult to do is we can't really determine positive and negative predictive values of the test because it depends on the prevalence of disease in that population. I would say, however, though, the prevalence of disease in a really sick animal that has a very large area of consolidation is probably very high, and the predictive value of relapse is also probably very high. So it doesn't just become the ultrasound as a test. It becomes... The ultrasound is a test, and my clinical assessment is a separate test. And when I combine those, I'm probably really pretty sure. So I think what they did as far as assigning the lower cutoff is good because it adds value in the cases where I'm 
not quite as sure, but it also isn't quite as powerful at sorting animals into those groups of yes, will, or no, won't realize. Well, they, they picked the cutoff based on the Uden index, which is essentially where we have the least errors. So somewhere along that spectrum where you have the least errors and the, and the tables, and there's a couple of figures that represent kind of the same thing. However, our, depending on what action I might take, and this is where it comes into clinical interpretation, right? So my false negatives and false positives in this case probably have different costs associated with them. And it all depends on what action I'm going to take based on this information. So if I say I'm not going to treat this animal, making a mistake in that direction could be a real problem if treatment could have benefited him. And none of that they tested. And they said, hey, we're, we're laying the groundwork. A couple other things, and just kind of as we review through, Brian, we're talking about the relapse rate in this case. They also measured average daily gain. Average daily gain was only associated with the uh, maximal depth of the lesions. And, and it did show a difference there that they had a decreased average daily gain, not a huge difference, at least by the way I way I look at it. And it wasn't associated with any other variables. What was your take on kind of the performance side? Yeah, it was. And I I interpreted that, and, and you can correct me if you read this differently, and maybe that's something they could have discussed a little more, but I interpreted that as a, as a relationship, meaning the more depth of the lung lesion, there was a, a continuously yep. decreasing average. So, you know, when you went from, it wasn't just, so with relapse, it was they're either above or below the cutoff. There's no relationship right no linear type relationship but with average daily game there seemed to be so i shouldn't just say linear there was some sort of relationship where the deeper the lesion the more expected loss of daily gain i i should expect so you know again that's i think animals already sick so we're what we can do to impact that uh, maybe we can, maybe we can't. But I think understanding that the more extensive the lung lesions, the more loss of gain I'm going to, the more performance loss. Yeah, I think that's useful information. It's really kind of supports what we've know, what we've seen from BRD trials in the past. But it, it is interesting that they noted it here with this particular study as well. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's one of the interesting parts is that as you look at the performance, it went right along. And whereas the other things that were tested, we're looking at yes, no, which you have to do, do they relapse or not? That continuous variable was linearly associated with their outcome of average daily gain. So as we walk through this paper, and I think it's, there's a couple things that just in evaluating papers in general, that, that this paper really does well. The, the study outcome, relapse, yes, no, clinically relevant. Patient comparability, you mentioned they came from commercial feed yards, absolutely. How about the magnitude of change? That's where we said, well, th that may be a spot where it didn't make a huge difference there biologically, but the way that they handled masking, blinding, outcome evaluation, very good. The experimental unit in this case was the individual animal. Mm -hmm. As they handled their data, it looked good. So essentially... A well-put-together study that's telling us what should I take home from this, Brian? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what I think the author said in their conclusion, which is <coughs> it's a technology that is showing some promise, and I, but I think we've got some further refinement to do before we're ready to say 
you should be doing this in every calf that comes to the shoot. And I, and I think the authors, they even mentioned that a lot of this was, um, they weren't able to calculate a sample size at the time of this, like how many animals they should put on the study because they didn't know what the differences between the groups were going to be. So some of this is, a, in their words as well, a little bit preliminary investigation into the technology. Now that we've got some of this data, now we can actually go out and say, if we want to detect this much difference between relapse, not relapse, or average daily gain, this would be the number of animals we would need to enroll in a subsequent study. And and the other thing they've done is they've told us, here are a couple things that you might look for an ultrasound that really didn't pan out, right? The comet tails, the pleural fluid, those are probably things we can leave alone for now. Let's focus on depth and area as we move the research forward. So, Or one of those, since they're collinear. Yeah, yeah. One or the, whichever's the, and that's the other thing, my, you know, as far as clinical relevance of this paper is, I know, I know practitioners use ultrasound way more than they did when I was in practice, but I, I do think there's probably some technique here and there's definitely some time involved with evaluating the images where I don't know that we're ready for the speed of commerce quite yet with the technology, but there, I think there's some promise here and I'm sure this group is probably continuing to investigate it as far as how the, how they can improve the clinical utility. But the speed's way different if you do what they did, which was record the video and had people look at it and go back. You're not going to make decisions shoot side in that manner. However, if you narrow the playing field, which is where I see this paper provides some good information in, let's narrow the playing field. The next steps would be kind of what we talked about. How, how do you know where I want to draw that cutoff, right? What, where you cutoff is positive and what I'm going to call positive and negative. Where you draw the cutoff. And I think the other thing they mentioned in this paper is where you take the image from, right? Yeah. So they, they mentioned there were a couple animals they couldn't do because the imaging was taking too long and the, the treatment crew was ready to move on. So if you could, if we can narrow it down to measure depth in this one location, and if it's greater than this, yes. If it's less than this, no, probably a very useful tool. Yeah. And the, the part that I'd be interested in just from some of my experience in research is which side are we taking the image mm-hmm. on in the animal? And that may depend on facilities. Cause I know there are facilities where you've got easy access to both sides. There's some, you only have easy access to one side and whether it's left or right, at least based on my experience could make a difference. Yeah. And they mentioned that too, Brad, their intent, there were a, a subset of animals. They could only ultrasound on one side of the chest. And, and so how that, how that plays into it in the final kind of, How do I use this clinically? Yeah, very significant. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Good information on this paper and appreciate you sharing with us.